This week is Parsha's Baha'aloscha. It's a very packed Parsha. And at the end, there's a series of events that uh, conclude the Parsha, that I think uh, the last of which has a very powerful uh, lesson that I want to share, or that was quite meaningful to me. The Jewish people have been at Sinai for almost a year, since the middle of Exodus, so the rest of Exodus from chapter 19 on, uh, Leviticus and the first 10 or so chapters of Numbers, they're actually encamped at the mountain or near the mountain in, in Mount Sinai. And they've been studying Torah for the duration. Moshe's been teaching them all the laws of Leviticus and all the other laws. And now they're about to leave. And the assumption is that they're going to go straight into Israel. As we know, next week's Parsha, they send them the spies. And the spies come back with a bad report. And that really sends things awry. And God says, well, the spies were in Israel for 40 days. And they brought back this horrible, libelous account 40 days are going to equal 40 years that the Jewish people are not going to be allowed to go in the land of Israel. But up until that point, the assumption is, if you look at a map, Egypt and Israel are not quite that far from each other. And there's actually a direct route, just head due north, well, slightly east. But it shouldn't take 40 years. And the assumption was that that's what's going to happen. The Jewish people are going to leave Sinai. They got all the Torah they need. And they're going to go to Israel. Now, as after they leave, all kinds of terrible things start happening. They start complaining. And they start complaining about various things. They they miss, they miss hate the manna. They've been eating manna for a year. It's so hard to eat manna. you got to think about what you want. You can't just eat mindlessly. They remember fondly all the good food that they – delicacies they had in Egypt for free, i.e. free from mitzvos. They're complaining. They want meat. They want a sizzling steak. They don't want to eat this – this manna, they start complaining in all different kinds of ways, and Moshe gets fed up with them. And he tells God, I'm sick and tired of carrying this nation myself, like a, like a, like a nurse carries a baby, which is, of course, a great window into Jewish leadership. It's tending to the charges, tending to the constituents, like you're dealing with a baby. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to give you some lieutenants. Let's gather 70 members of the elders, the 70 people who bore the brunt of the uh, Egyptian wrath. These were the, the overseers, the Jewish overseers of the Jewish subjects. They absorbed the blows for, intended for the Jewish brethren. Therefore, they, they're going to be the leaders. Those are the leadership uh, qualities. And Moshe selects 72 candidates for 70 jobs. And the reason why he does that is because there's 12 tribes, and each tribe wants to give no less than the other tribes, but 70 is not divisible by 12. It is divisible, however, by uh, uh, 72 is divisible by 12, and therefore Moshe says, okay, we'll take six candidates from each tribe, and then we'll use God to ferret out which which two are not qualified. How are they going to do that? They're going to put 72 cards or 72 pieces of paper. And on 70 of them, they're going to write Zakain, which means elder, which means you're going to be a member of this new body. And two of them are blank. And then he gathered these 72 members to go each one pull out of the hat. And whoever, whatever you pick, that's going to be your destiny. Now, there were two individuals, two of the 72 candidates who opted 
to not participate in the lottery. And the reason why is because they thought that they're probably going to pick up the blank card and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of everyone. And therefore, they're going to stay with the rest of the camp. They're not going to join Moshe and the 70 of their colleagues to go make the selection process by the Mishran. Now, the truth was that these two were qualified. And in fact, two other people were not qualified and picked up the blank cards. And the instant that these 70 individuals were selected to help Moshe lead the nation to be the, to be the members of the nascent Sanhedrin, they were all imbued with prophecy. God tells Moshe, I'm going to give you an extra dose of prophecy, and it's going to filter to your now helpers in, leader, in leadership of the nation. So instantly, you have 68 people by the selection committee, by the selection process with Moshe, by the Mishkan, who right now are prophets overnight. And then you have two who didn't join and are instantly imbued with prophecy, but they are amongst the nation. And they start prophesizing. And they start saying things that are very disheartening to the listeners. And a whole crowd gathers around them. And they start saying, well, Moshe's going to die and Joshua is going to lead us into the land, which at that time was unthinkable. Moshe, when Moshe is very vital, we're about to walk into the land of Israel. Don't tell me what are you talking about, Moshe dying and Joshua. Anyhow, as the crowd there gathers, one of the people there is Zipporah. Zipporah is Moshe's wife. And she mouths off to a degree and she says, oh, these are new prophets. I feel bad for their wives. Of course, Zipporah is the wife of the greatest prophet. And we're told in, in the Talmud, and it's hinted in the Torah, but it's not explicit, that after Sinai, Moshe separated himself from his wife. And therefore, Zipporah's impression that if you're a prophet, you can't be with your wife. And therefore, now there's new prophets, so she starts telling the people around her, well, I feel bad for their wives because now they're on their own, like I am. Now, this is news to the people that are listening, namely her sister-in-law and her brother-in-law. That's Miriam and Aaron, Moshe's older sister and older brother. They, too, are prophets. In fact, the name that Miriam is giving is Miriam Hanaviah, Miriam the prophetess. She's a prophet. And she's like the, the women, the, the leader of the women, the most, the most uh, revered woman in the Jewish nation. And she's, wait, wait a minute, I'm a prophet too. And Aaron's like, I'm a prophet as well. I never heard of this idea that you have to separate from your spouse. Both of them, Miriam and Aaron, were happily married. They say, wait a minute, we're, we're also prophets. And who, like, why is Moshe any better than us? That he has this, he's, he's a greater prophet than us, and he has to separate from his wife. And instantly, one, or perhaps even both of them, gets blanketed with saras. This spiritual leprosy is given to people's people, shonarat, speak evil talk. And it's a question, did Miriam get it only, or did Miriam and Aaron get it? And this is the kind of the last section of the parsha deals with this saga with uh, Miriam, perhaps even Aaron, receiving, tra- uh, contracting saras. And Moshe, of course, starts praying for them and interceding on their behalf. And the end of the parsha 
tells us that even though the Jewish people were geared up and packed and ready to go and begin traveling towards Israel, because the Mitzorah, because someone who has contracted Saras, has to be outside of the camp quarantined for seven days, and they can't move, they have to be there in a given spot, that's part of their atonement process, and Miriam had to do that, the entire nation waited for her for seven days. And Rashi, the final Rashi on the parasha, says something, I think, really astonishing. It says that, if you think about it, the nation is comprised of 600,000 adult males. You would assume there's a similar amount of, similar amount of females. And there's young people, there's old people. So we're dealing with certainly in the millions of people. There's one old lady, Miriam, and she has Saras, and she has to stay behind. It seems improper that the whole nation should be held down because of one person's inability to travel. Why does the whole nation stop? So Rashi says something fascinating. Rashi says, go back to chapter 1 of the book of Exodus. Chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, it tells how Moshe was a small baby. He was only three months old. And Pharaoh made a rule, all babies, Jews and Egyptians, have to be chucked into the Nile. And Moshe's mother, Yochevet, had no choice. And she devised a flotation device, a little box, a little boat. And she put Moshe inside it. And she put him into the Nile. That was the only way to save him. Now the Egyptian stargazers say, well, it looks like the leader that's going to save the Jewish people is already in the water. And that stopped the decree. But of course, Moshe was in the water, but he wasn't dead. Now, that story continues that Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, was traveling at the same time concurrently to go take a bath in the Nile. And she sees a small boat, a small box floating. And she investigates. She sends one of her maids or her hand to to go check what's in it. And she sees a cute little baby. And she says, oh, this must be a Jewish baby. I'm going to adopt him. He's so cute, so adorable. And that's how Moshe ends up in Pharaoh's household and grows up. Until he's an adult, he grows up under uh, the his stepmom, which we heard Jewish name is Basia or Batya. And in Pharaoh's home as essentially Pharaoh's step-grandson until he embraces his Jewish roots and he has to, he's exiled from Egypt. But the Torah tells us that after Moshe's mother put him in a box, Miriam, Moshe's older sister, she stood by to watch what happened. And she was waiting to see... What's going to be with Moshe? And indeed, once Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and she tries to pass him off to have someone nurse him, because of course he's a little baby, Moshe refuses to nurse from any of the Egyptian women. And Miriam, Moshe's sister, makes a suggestion, well, maybe he only likes to eat from the Israelite women. And she actually arranges that Moshe's own mother is hired by Moshe's now stepmother to nurse him. And Moshe indeed was nursed by his own mother, biological mother. Says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, why did the whole nation, well, what did Miriam do to merit that the entire nation waited for her? 
for seven days. Well, when she was a young girl, she waited for Moshe. And thus, in the merit of her waiting for Moshe, the entire nation waited for her. That's what Rashi says. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very deep and astonishing insight that Rashi is telling us, according from the Talmud. First of all, the Talmud tries to make a calculation. How long was Miriam waiting for Moshe? And how long was the nation waiting for Miriam? So we know that the Torah tells us quite clearly that the nation waited for Miriam for seven days. Well, how long was Miriam waiting for Moshe? The Talmud says she was waiting about a third of an hour, so 20 minutes. And says the Talmud, the, there is a principle in Jewish eschatology that the reward is 500 times what the effort is. So if you do the math, a third of an hour is 20 minutes. If you multiply that times 500, you have essentially seven days. And therefore, she waited for 20 minutes. The nation will wait for uh, 10,000 minutes, uh, which is uh, uh, 500 times that. That's what the Talmud tells. But I think that really, if, if you actually kind of factor in all the other aspects of these two episodes, Miriam waiting for Moshe and the nation waiting for Miriam, you find that there's other discrepancies. Uh, besides for it being, you know, 20 minutes versus seven hours, Miriam, you know, she's one person. And she's waiting for Moshe, just one person. Whereas here, you have millions of people waiting for seven days. Moreover, she's not just waiting for a stranger. She's waiting to see what's going to happen with her own brother. Think about how traumatizing uh, traumatizing it is for a, a young girl. She's six, so five or six years old. She has a brand new baby. She's so excited. This is her baby brother. And now he has to be put in the floating box on the Nile River. Of course, she's invested in his well-being. And it's only logical, it's only appropriate for her to try to see what's going to happen. Whereas the whole nation, they're dealing with a stranger. Yes, she's one of the matriarchs of the nation. She everyone looks up to her. But still, she's not part of their blood family. And therefore, there's, again, another dis- discrepancy between these two episodes. What other differences are there between the episode of Miriam waiting for her brother and the episode of the nation waiting for us? I would say that even if you weren't Moshe's sister or Moshe's sibling, you'd probably be super curious to see what happens. There's a mother put a baby in a box and it's floating down. This could go very poorly. This could be a fiasco. Uh, this maybe something really, maybe something really remarkable will happen. So I think it's again, Miriam didn't have to suffer by waiting to see what's going to happen with Moshe, and she was motivated for a whole host of reasons. And it was only twenty minutes, and that equals a nation of of millions. And I was thinking, I was trying to make an estimate. You know, suppose if you knew that you're about to go in the, land of Egypt, in the land of Israel. Remember, at the time, the Jewish people did not yet know that they're going to spend 40 or really 39 more years in the wilderness. They thought that right away they're walking into Israel. And of course, that's been the hope and the dream for centuries to go back into the land of Israel. They were very eager to do that. And now they're told, you got to wait seven days because some old lady 
Gatsaras because she's she mouthed off. And I was thinking, you know, just how how much of an inconvenience was this? So I came up with two two parables. You know, like what what what's a time where you just don't want to be someplace? You want to be somewhere else. I was thinking either it could be here in the DMV or the DPS in Texas. You just you, it's a universal fear feeling of of misery. You just want to get out and and get on your way. Or you're in LaGuardia Airport. How much would someone have to pay for you to spend a week at the DMV? Or to spend a week at LaGuardia Airport? To have your flight delayed and you're there for a week. You're not dying. It's not danger. It's just misery. It's just you're upset. So I was thinking, maybe this is a different number for everyone else. Maybe at a minimum, maybe 20 grand it would, it would cost. <laughs> or what was the, what is the lowest amount? I was saying between 20 and 40 grand would cost pe- people to have to spend an entire week at the DMV. Here we're told that a nation of millions, maybe 3 million people, they all were sitting around waiting, eager to leave, eager to go to Israel, eager to get out of this place and finally head to the promised land. And they're all waiting for Miriam for seven days. The amount of value, so to speak, that Miriam garnered is like at least $60 billion, all for waiting 20 minutes for her brother who was in the bot. This whole story, if you kind of map it out, and you maybe make this crude calculation like we did about what's happened. What did she forfeit? What did she give up? Very, very little. But what did she get? She got something that's like an entire nation inconvenience themselves for her. And I think that this story provides us a snapshot of divine reward. I think it's a good lesson. Again, we're not given in the Torah many examples of reward. And generally speaking, the Torah just refrains, shies away from talking about the afterlife uh, for many reasons. And everything that does talk about the afterlife is is all hinted. It's all, it's all covert. But we see a few glimpses about just how God makes these calculations. And in God's calculus, Miriam waiting for her brother for 20 minutes when anyone would wait for a stranger even, but certainly their own sibling, just to see what's going to happen to them. To them, That, in God's eyes, makes it worthy that an entire nation eager to finally get out of there and eager to go in the land of Israel is going to wait for seven days for a stranger. There's other examples of, of, of this where a small act, if you were to ask Miriam, like, what, what are your big merits? She, she probably forgot about that story because she was a little girl and it maybe wouldn't register. We think about like, what are the big acts of dedication, self-sacrifice where someone does for God? And here we're told like, this is her merit and it's so much grander than what she put in her input just to see how it plays through divine reward in the output i think it's just an astonishing thing uh to think about just how much how powerful are our actions and how amplified are their rewards